What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Lance Armstrong. Lance is one of the most divisive athletes in history. He won a record seven consecutive Tour de France titles after beating stage three testicular cancer, which had spread to his lymph nodes, lungs, brain, and abdomen. But he has also faced intense scrutiny and admitted to taking performance-enhancing drugs like EPO and cortisone. In this conversation, we discuss his childhood growing up in Plano, Texas. We talk about how he initially got interested in cycling and when he knew that he could beat the world's best. He tells me the details about his cancer diagnosis, treatment, and eventual return to professional cycling. We dig deep into his fall from grace, including the federal investigation, the multi-million dollar lawsuits, and his eventual confession to Oprah. And finally, Lance opens up about the financial impact this has had on his family, from losing $75 million in one day to a fortunate meeting that enabled him to become an early investor in Uber. I really enjoyed this conversation with Lance, and I hope that you do too. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. First up is SoRare. SoRare is a global sports game and entertainment platform that allows fans to buy, sell, and trade officially licensed player cards as NFTs. The coolest part? Each NFT has real utility. It's like fantasy sports, except you can buy, sell, trade, and manage your lineup with the NFTs. I've been playing their NBA game a lot lately, and I think you'll love it too. Here's how it works. You sign up for an account, which is free, and you're given 20 common cards. Then twice a week, you put together a strategy and build two five-player lineups and enter into competitions. If you win, you get rewarded with even more player cards. But here's the best part. If you sign up today, SoRare is offering my listeners a free, limited card when you buy five cards on the primary market. So go to SoRare.com slash JoePomp to play. That's SoRare, S-O-R-A-R-E dot com slash JoePomp to play. This episode is sponsored by my friends at 8Sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer, and the 8Sleep pod is the ultimate sleep machine. 8Sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. For me, I was never able to get good sleep because I was always too hot. But now, I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have before. And the data backs it up. Clinical data shows that 8Sleep users experience up to 34% more deep sleep. And elite athletes like Lewis Hamilton, George Russell, Francis Ngannou, and Justin Medoros are now using 8Sleep to gain an advantage on the competition. But here's the best part. 8Sleep recently launched the next generation of their pod, and they're having an epic holiday sale. The new Pod 3 enables more accurate sleep and health tracking with double the amount of sensors, delivering you the best sleep experience on Earth. So get your Christmas shopping done earlier this year and go to 8sleep.com slash Joe. That's 8sleep.com slash Joe to save $250 on the Pod 3 this holiday season. Next up is MoonPay, the leader in Web3 infrastructure. Trusted by major crypto brands and millions of people worldwide, MoonPay is a portal to Web3, a place where you can transact with peers globally and own your digital identity. As blockchain technology continues to integrate with sports all over the world, teams and leagues are looking for simple solutions to unlock their digital markets. This is where MoonPay can help. Whether you are a front office staff, a business executive, or a marketer, and you're looking to mint collectibles on the blockchain to create an NFT marketplace for your brand, MoonPay's technology can bring your digital strategies to life. So if you want to learn more, go to MoonPay.com Joe. That's MoonPay.com Joe. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, let's get into this episode. I want to talk about a bunch of stuff. First, I got one good question. You ready? Yeah. I did a little research before this. I found out you own a cafe called Juan Pelota. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, you still own it? We, also true. It's connected to, I have a bike shop that I've had for 
Jeez, probably close to 15 years in Austin, right downtown, before downtown Austin Blew was, up, yeah. was just, you know, absolutely massive. And that bike shop's called Mellow Johnny's, and it's a beautiful old building. It is, and of course we are biased, but it is hands down the coolest bike shop in the world. Um, <laughs> Why is that? It just, it's a big open space. The people that work there are amazing. And bike shops can be a little intimidating, especially for women. Yeah. You know, you walk into a store, there's all kinds of mechanical stuff and you're trying, how do I shift and where's the safe place to ride? And, you know, cycling can be intimidating and daunting. And so the staff there for all the time we've been open has been just great with people. And that store's called Mel Johnny's, which is also a play on some words. That's a play on Mayo Jean. And then we wanted to do a coffee shop, to your question. And I had always just, you know, had a little fun with my diagnosis. And, you well, know. so people that don't know, it's one ball. Is that correct? Well, again, to that. So, and, and Juan I, is, Juan is, is, is a, is could a, be Juan. And, and, and a long time ago, I would check in when I needed to check in and under a fake name. I would always check in under Juan Pelota. And so then we opened the store and we borrowed the name Juan. Like, well, it sounds like one. Yeah. Pelota means ball. Um, so <laughs> that's amazing. So it's that's, even better that you checked in on that you use that as a fake name. Yeah, yeah, used, awesome. used to, used, used to. to. And yeah, I mean, coffee and bikes kind of go hand in hand. So it's, yeah. and it's a cool, it's a great cafe. I mean, it's, there are people that just go to the cafe. They don't even, it's yeah. actually connected to the bike store, but there are people that just go there and don't even wander into the store. Love it. All right, let's start at the beginning. How does a guy from Plano, Texas, a kid, get interested in swimming, cycling, triathlons, et cetera? Real simple. I, as a kid from Plano, and to take you back to the 80s when I grew up in Plano, Plano was, a was, and we all, I think most of us understand the importance of football in the state of Texas. And, of course, then I spent most of my adult life in Austin, and we have had, you know, three state championship titles with Westlake. But, you know, going back to the 80s, Plano was, was a powerhouse. Mm-hmm. So most kids in Plano, or most kids in Texas for that matter, sort of get not pushed into, but sort of encouraged to play the mainstream sports, especially football. And I did the same. And football, basketball, baseball. All of them. Yeah. And I sucked. I sucked at all of them. <laughs> really? I could, yeah, I couldn't. I don't have a ton of side-to-side coordination. I don't have great hand-eye coordination. And I just grew tired of it. I thought, this is, you know, I'm not very good at this. This isn't a whole lot of fun. And this is probably in the sixth or seventh grade. I'm starting to figure this out. And my mom, I said, I don't want to play these sports. And she said, and this is just to put it in context, when I'm that age, my mom's probably not even 30 years old. Yeah. She had me when she was 17. So tough little lady. She said, that's fine, but you have to play a sport. And I thought, oh God, what am I going to do? And so I looked around. I had a few friends that were on the swim team. And I thought, well, I'll try the swim team. But, you know, again, I was 12, 13 years old. And, you know, most kids that are swimmers start swimming when they're six, seven years old, you know, know, all the greats started very, very young. And so, but I didn't know how to swim. And so they, but I joined the team, City of Plano Swimmers. Chris McCurdy was the coach, who's a legendary coach. And I had to start swimming with six-year-olds just to learn how to swim and learn all the strokes and, you know, learn the technique. I'm sure that quickly passed. Well, it did. And I think about this a lot. I don't know. I don't know what kept me in it. You know, for a 12-year-old kid to swim with seven-year-olds, when all your buddies are down in their lane, I hung in there for whatever, you know, call it fate, call it determined. I don't know. But I stayed. Yeah. And a month later, I went over a lane with the eight-year-olds. And a month after that, the nine, you know, pretty soon I was, you know, one of the best swimmers in the state. And then from there, that was my entree 
into let's just call it endurance sports, right? Yeah. And and all the while too, another sport that I picked up was I ran track and cross country in high school. So now you have the bookends of the triathlon. Yep. And then I went at some point, saw an ad for a triathlon, a kid's triathlon, sponsored by Rainbow Bread. I thought, well, that would be cool. I just don't have a bike. So I managed to get a bike and join the triathlon and won the triathlon. And really the rest is history. And then actually- and you're what age at this point? You're like teenager? Iron Kids, I was 14. Because you went- Pro at I went 15? pro at 15 years old. 15. So, the, but the only reason I did that was we had a the biggest triathlon in the world at the time was in Dallas, sponsored by a, a chain of gyms, Valley Fitness, called President's Triathlon. And I had a guy that I trained with. He said, "Like you should just race with the pros because I could swim with the pros yeah. for sure. Potentially could ride with them, and certainly couldn't run with them. They run. They're a lot Are you older. training though at the time? Like you're going to do this full time, or is it just happenstance that you walked into it and you were very good mm. and well, I'm training with the swim team, which is, you know, when you're training... Swim it, training is hard, right? It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, I, we're swimming anywhere from six to 10,000 yards a day. That's uh, crazy. Which, which is a lot. Think about that. That's and if you four do, to uh, six miles. Swimming, typically, it's like, what, three to four times running? The distance-wise, like it's... No, the run is, is the run is six times farther. Six or, times farther. Yeah. But so you're swimming that much. And then I was also, in the mornings, running either track or cross-country with the high school team. So I already had that there. And then on the weekends, I'd go out on local group rides. And so, I mean, it was kind of all there. I was still <laughs> going to school as well. So I jumped in this triathlon in Dallas and come out of the water with all the top pros. I mean, I'm looking around, thinking, you know, Mark Allen there and all, Greg Welch, all these guys. I mean, just, I'm like, oh, this is cool. Get on the bike, just kind of riding my race. And I'm with these dudes. Yeah. Are they surprised at this point? Yeah, well, they, they they race with each other every weekend. Yeah, so they Who's they know guy? everybody in the field. They're I think they probably you'd have to ask them, but I think they probably were going, "Who's this guy? Is this guy this guy just jump on the course?" And then got off the bike with Mark Allen. He and I came off tied for second, and then then it faded in the run. I mean, again, these guys could run, you know, low thirties in the ten k, and I was not anywhere near that, but still finished respectable. I think I ended up top 10. And after that, I just I kept going, kept racing, kept traveling, started swimming less, which didn't make Coach McCurdy very happy. But And then had the dream. I, mean, I think the continuation of that story is like, how does that get you cycling? The dream was always to go to the Olympics. But you know, this is in, I turned pro in triathlon in 1987. The sport of triathlon wasn't an Olympic sport until 2000 in Sydney. So I'm watching this play out. And then also really starting to love the bike, love that more than anything else. That was sort of my jam. Yeah. And made the full-time switch in 1989, 1990, and then went to the Olympics in 1992. And I would have had to wait, you know, another eight more years, assuming I could have made that team. The best triathletes can really, really run. And I can really swim, and I can really ride. Yeah. And I can sort of run, but not like they can. So it was probably a good idea to... Switch to cycling. When you look back today, I'm sure at the time you just assumed you didn't really think much of it probably. But today, it probably seems like you had an outsized work ethic or drive mm -hmm. that other people didn't have at the time, right? You're 15 years old going pro. You're riding, you're swimming, you're running on the weekends. Yeah. Uh, traveling all over. Traveling all alone. Over. A lot of kids aren't doing that. No, right? I know. <laughs> my mom uh, thought I was crazy. She said, you're going to go where? I mean, I was yeah. going, I mean, Venezuela, Mexico, uh, Bermuda, <laughs> Canada, and without my mom, she had a full-time job. And, you know, pre-internet, pre-cell phones. It's a different time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I have five kids. I mean, if one of them said at 15 or what, even 16, said, hey, I'm, 
I'm going to fly to Mexico. You're not going to hear from me. Yep. I got a flight. I think I have a room. I'll see you in four days. I'd say, no, <laughs> you're not doing that. Yeah. But it was, it, was an, it was an adventure. And I found guys along the way that were much older than me that some of them were just competitors and they didn't hang out with anybody. But I, I identified a few of these guys that really became big brothers of mine. If I did have a problem on the road, I could look up to them or rely on them to help me out. All right. Talk to me about, we'll call it like the early stage of your career, right? Cycling wise. I believe you were diagnosed in 96, right? So late 80s to 96. What were those five, six, seven years like? Really the most, the biggest early memory I have was when I first made the switch from tri to cycling, I was still what they call a junior cyclist. So that's, Mm -hmm. you know, they've changed all the divisions now, but I was probably 17 or 18 and the junior worlds was in Moscow. And this is before the wall came down. And, you know, obviously that country is what it is still today. But I thought, wow, that's crazy. If I make the team, I'm going to go to Moscow and race. I don't even know where that is. Oh, so it sounded like a bad idea, not a good no, idea. No, no. I thought it sounded like a great idea. Yeah. But, it, you know, it, it didn't sound very glamorous. And it turned out to not, not be, be glamorous. not glamorous at all. But I thought, I'm just a kid from Plano that if I can make this team, which I knew I could, I'm going to go all the way over there and race all these other kids from around the world. I was like, fuck yeah, I'm in. Yeah. So that was the start of it all. And then, of course, you know, I went on to race the Worlds next year in Germany and then two years after that in Japan and then turned pro after the Olympic Games, which I didn't do very well in in Barcelona. Turned pro the very next week. I got last, dead ass last in my first race. (laughs) Is that a humbling experience? It was. It was an interesting day. It was in San Sebastian, Spain. Very, very difficult race. The weather, we started under beautiful conditions. And then halfway through the race, the conditions completely shifted. As it can in, in the Basque country. Mm-hmm. And this weather rolls in, and I mean, people are just saying, okay, you know, I'm not going to win the race. So people are just dropping out, which I would have done too five years later, you know? But I'm like, shit, man, this is my first race. I can't, I think I got to just try and finish. Like, but everybody kept dropping out. And next thing you know, I'm all alone. And, and the director of the team's like, hey, you sure you want to keep going? I was like, yeah, let's just keep going. Yeah. I would argue you didn't finish last then. I would argue. Yeah, that well, but uh, I was the last place finisher. <laughs> so, but after that, that was it. And then I actually went from the Basque Country to another race in Galicia, which is another region of Spain, and actually won my first race. The race in San Sebastian was a World Cup. The next World Cup was in Zurich, and I ended up getting second. So I thought, okay, that's better. Yeah. Right. And then, and this is still a year, I mean, I wasn't even 21 years old yet. And then the next year I won the world championships in Oslo in 1993. And then it had some mixed years, not great years. And then was diagnosed in 96. So pre-diagnosis, what is the state of pro cycling at the time? To me, right, it feels like we had this rise up when you're winning yep. the tours and everyone's loving it and they're super popular here in the United States. What did it feel like before all of that? I don't know. I Maybe I don't have the clearest memory, but I remember it being bigger. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the crowds to me, and maybe those years we had big stars. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you're coming off Le Monde. You've got Indurain in Spain. You've got Chiapucci and Buño in Italy. You've got massive stars. I mean, the crowds were massive. Obviously, the technology completely changed. I mean, yeah. we're, if you looked at those bikes that we rode then, they looked like, you know, looked like we were riding in the 1800s. I thought I was playing at the highest level. I thought it was a big deal. And, you know, I try to look, you know, I cover all the races now with our shows, but I try to imagine or sort of compare and contrast. It's hard to do. And it's also hard to do when you're not on the roadside or in the race, right? You're just trying to watch it on TV. So you get diagnosed 96, right? You said? October 2nd. October 2nd. What was that process like 
let's talk about finding out, right? How you discovered it first off, and mm-hmm. then we'll talk about it afterwards. Well, I had, I had, you know, like a lot of events in my life where the fallout was self-inflicted, although I didn't, you know, somehow acquire cancer. I, but when I say self-inflicted, I mean, and we can talk about the other moments in my life where things were self-inflicted, but I just ignored the pain. I ignored all the symptoms, whether it's severe headaches, blurry vision, coughing up of blood, obviously, you know, massive swelling and soreness down there. I just ignored it. I had an excuse for every single one of them until finally... I just couldn't ignore it anymore, which led to a really, really complicated diagnosis that almost no young man gets to. I mean, most yeah. young men catch this very early. Clearly, they're a lot smarter than me. Yeah. Um, well, anyone and that's their cure rate is extremely high now, but it complicated the process for me. And I'm assuming you think some of the pain is coming from the bike at this point. Oh, right? uh, of course, yeah. Or you're that, just rationalizing. That, no, that part, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. Headache is because I went out with my buddies the night before. Yeah. Blurry visions, because I probably need to start getting reading glasses, which I didn't need for another 20 years, by the way. Now I can't live without them. So you get... And the soreness, yeah. It's just, man, I sit on a bike five, six hours a day. Of course. Yeah, where else would it be from? Right. Yeah. Well... So you get diagnosed, right? Yeah, of course. That's what it ended up being. You get diagnosed, though. And I don't know if most people, just casual fans of the sport or casual people who followed the story, understand how severe it was at the Mm -hmm. time, right? Uh, People said testicular cancer and... To someone today, maybe that seems not as severe because your point, you catch it early, it gets removed, et cetera. But I think it was advanced, stage three maybe at the mm-hmm. time. It had spread throughout different oh, places. Oh, everywhere, yeah. Where, yeah. where, what was the diagnosis? How was that news delivered? What did they say? Um, a lot has changed, as we know, from the mid-90s. So the initial diagnosis just from the ultrasound was testicular cancer, but we didn't know. Well, and I shouldn't say that because as soon as they did that ultrasound, they had me do a chest x-ray. And that really confirmed the diagnosis because the the lungs were just littered with tumors. And so I'm sure at that point, the radiologist, whoever did the imaging is going, oh man, this ain't good. And we're in Austin where I was living at the time and Austin's a big city now, but back then it was a college town. Like you didn't have a medical school, you didn't have leading oncologists. And I'm sure these people were like, this, this is not good. Yeah. And then, you know, then of course we had the two lesions on the brain which I didn't find out for probably three more weeks until I finally made my way to Indianapolis and they did the head scan. As I was walking them through the symptoms of the blurry vision, the headaches, that was from the two lesions on the brain. And then there was a little stuff in the abdomen, but that stuff tends to get fixed with chemotherapy. And then of course, you know, the testicle, just to go back to the coffee shop, that's long gone. (laughs) That just goes away. (laughs) Well, they put you in, you were in surgery the next day, right? The next morning, 7 a.m. the next morning, I thought, God... Jim Reeves was the urologist. I said, like any patient would say, like when the doc says, hey, bad news, you have cancer, the patient always says, are you sure? Yeah. Second opinion, maybe, right? Yeah. I said, well, well, yeah, shouldn't I check this out? And he says, you have surgery tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Yeah. We're sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was like, and then he pulled out the chest x-ray and I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. This isn't good. And going back to just the lack of technology, because I think in the arc of my life's story, as complicated as it is, technology's played a big part. But most people that are diagnosed or loved ones of people that have been diagnosed, they immediately go to technology, right? They Google everything. They learn as much as they can. They get up like, what is this? What are my options? What are my odds? We didn't have that. We didn't have the internet in 1996, right? You're grabbing fucking pamphlets at the doctor's office. You're going to the bookstore, if anybody remembers those. Actually, a lot of people remember those. But there was no, it was the early days of the internet. You just couldn't get beamed up very quickly. So you had to really rely on your doctors. Mm -hmm. 
you had an interesting scenario, if I remember correctly, where you started treatment in Austin, right? And then you went to Indiana, as you mentioned. Did one cycle, I almost had to, you know, it was so advanced. I couldn't have waited. They obviously did the surgery ASAP, but they also start chemotherapy ASAP. And then the way that testicular cancer chemo works is you're treated for five days and you have 16 days off. Mm -hmm. You have five days and 16 days off. And then you do that four times. So I had 16 days. So I got done with that initial treatment in Austin, which then, of course, included the drug that I was ultimately taken off of called bleomycin. But I did do one cycle of bleomycin. As soon as I got out, I was like, all right, I'm leaving. And for people that don't know, bleomycin, it's very bad for your lungs. And stuff, very right? toxic for yeah. the lungs, causes permanent lung scarring. I Basically, mean, you'll never ride again. I think if you did four cycles of it, yeah, I think that's a foregone conclusion. But are you even thinking about that at this point? Or are you yeah. thinking about no, no, living? no, no. Yeah, when I ended up in Indiana, yes. Yeah, yeah. They asked me. They said, do you, Dr. Einhorn, Dr. Nichols, Dr. Roth, they all said, hey, do you ever want to race again? Mm-hmm. And I said, well... I mean, I prefer to get out of here alive. That's step one. That's step one. (laughs) And if I can achieve that, then yeah, I mean, it's what I've done my whole life. Mm. I said, all right, well, you're going to have to come off bleomycin and we're going to have to alter the treatment. The other thing I should have added is with standard treatment, you go to the chemo center and you're treated, you probably treated for three or four hours and you go home. Mm -hmm. So even though you're getting chemotherapy, you're sleeping in your bed every night. When they took me off the previous protocol and put me on the new one, it was less toxic on the lungs, but more toxic on the overall body. And so they said, you know, if you want to switch, you're going to have to be an inpatient. So you'll have to live in the hospital. Mm -hmm. I said, no problem. Yeah. You know, so I lived in Indianapolis for a couple of months, but, you know, took me off the bleo and, you know, doctors make a lot of very smart decisions. And, you know, I banked sperm before I was ever treated. We used that banked sperm to have my first three kids they also ask you that, do you ever want to have kids, mm-hmm. right? So just like, hey, do you ever want to go back to racing? The first question they ask you is, do you ever want to have kids? And if you say maybe or yes, then you have to bank sperm. And thank God I did that because I got three beautiful kids as a product of that. And then in a weird way, it came back and I have two naturally born beautiful kids too. It's amazing, yeah. <laughs> do they ever, at this point, I'm not a doctor, right? So I don't know the exact conversations, but I'm smart enough or intelligent enough, I think, to know that stage three cancer advanced, spread to different parts of the body, not great, right? Not great. Do they ever give you a percentage chance that you might die? Like, does it get to that point? Well, I think there are general statistics. Everybody asks that question. So Mm -hmm. the doctors, they cannot personalize the odds for, you know, for Joe or for Lance or for anybody else. They Based have on to, the number of cases they've they have seen. to look at, yeah. they'll, they'll just look at the history, the database, their, you know, oncology's track record and say, this is what the stats will tell you, right? And so, and oftentimes if it's, and I would do the same, if it's 20% chance of survival, they probably tell you 50% chance. They double it, yeah. Yeah. So is that it what was, they told you? It was, I never really leaned in too hard on that. I figured out as long as, as long as I've found You can't best, do anything about it, right? There's nothing so, you can do. If you yeah. find the best place to be treated and you trust that place and it works and you walk out and you're like, oh, great. And if it doesn't work, you say, hey, man, I did everything I could. Yeah. The only reason why I ask is because it seems like, and maybe I'm completely wrong on this, right? But it seems like there was almost a trade-off to a different type of therapy. Yeah. Well, I asked that. I mean, the reality of testicular Mm -hmm. cancer treatment is the main compound is platinum, Mm -hmm. right? And cisplatin is its name. So that stayed. I'm not a researcher, but before they had platinum-based therapy, most people died. When they came along with platinum-based therapy, most people lived. Gotcha. So that stayed. The bleo went out, and something else came in. 
Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. But yes, that's a good question. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> Am I trying to hedge my chances to race again yeah. and hedge my chances for survival? No, I would have said, no, 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 no. Okay. I, I, I want standard uh, therapy. Uh, some of the ways it's written online, it makes it seem like you're basically, I only care about racing. I yeah. want to optimize my chance of potentially racing again, right. that, trying you know unique treatments or whatever they are. But yeah. that makes sense, right? Platinum stays, you try something that's yeah. newer. I mean, there's a lot of stuff written about me on the internet, most of which is true, <laughs> and some of it's not true. That would be one that's not true. It's no. not true. Yeah. All right, so you get done. You're cancer-free at this point. Yep. And you, then take a couple years off, a year off, really. And you had a contract before, right, racing-wise? I had, I had, yes. It was I had, a big contract, right? It was big for cycling at that yeah. time and with a French team. And so, but I couldn't race, you know, I couldn't, the doctors wanted me to take a year off. And so it just led to a mess. They went on to the contract. I was not going to race. And so we just, at the end of 1997, we just parted ways. And then I ended up on the postal service. Yeah. So what is which, that like? Which, uh, which was a really complicated story. You had to convince them at that point or no? Because this is pre-tours, right? This, this is, is pre-tours, yeah. and if you won the world championship five years before that, showed a ton of potential, you know, most teams, you know, and they might have consulted with other oncologists like, hey, is this guy's body ever going to be the same, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think most oncologists would say, hey, it's probably not. He's probably suffered some, yeah. some ill effects or side effects from the treatment. I looked at it the other way because I figured I raced, you know, at least a year right? I'm the one who saw the chest x-ray. I looked at chest x-ray and I said, shit, if all that's gone, like, I just can't imagine that what I'm looking at is good mm -hmm. for breathing. So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, let's just get rid of all that stuff. I'm going to feel a lot better. Mm -hmm. That's a very simple way to think about it, but it is the way I thought about it. And, but nonetheless, you know, there was zero interest. And I even think Postal reluctantly took me on. I think a couple of the sponsors, of course, they're all primarily American-based companies, thought it would be a you know, feel good story, you know, we'll give the cancer kid a chance. And that one, the rest was really history. And you, if I remember correctly, negotiated an incentive-based contract mostly, right? I did in 1998 because the base salary was so low and the way cycling was structured in the day was, it was a point system. So the, at the end of the season, you had a, a number one rider in the world based on points mm -hmm. and you had a number one team in the world based on points. And so I just said, you know, just give me a thousand bucks a point. And they said, sure, you might get 70 points. Yeah. Well, I ended up getting like 965 points. It's almost a million bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they didn't love Like, it. holy shit. Yeah, they were like, oh. Let's go find money. Yeah. Yeah, and then won the tour the next year. So how does your life change at this point, right? I'm assuming it changed pretty drastically from, call it, 99 to 2005. Yeah. Just talk me through that period a bit. Well... It changed a lot, and it probably changed – not probably. It did change more than I was observing, which really sort of leads to the downfall and just this disconnectedness from the massiveness of this story mm -hmm. and me just being sort of an athlete in my lane, training, racing, and only thinking about that. And, of course, the sport was complicated at the time. There was It was not anywhere near to solving a really, really big problem that I was also a part of. You know, I guess looking back on it, if you think, okay, you have an American that wins the Tour of France, that's already a big deal. We've seen that before. But mm -hmm. now, no, now you have a cancer survivor that wins the Tour of France, and then he keeps winning the Tour de France. Mm -hmm. And he builds this huge foundation, and the cycling industry explodes. Like, I didn't pay attention to any of that. But that was building this mythical story that ultimately came crashing down. But I didn't know, and I didn't 
honor and respect the build and the following. Yeah. How big was the foundation at its peak? Because I remember the yeah, the, the bands big, were pro- everywhere. Yeah, bands were everywhere. We <laughs> sold 85 million yellow wristbands. We best years we probably did somewhere between 50 and 60 million in donations. A half a billion, a half billion. a billion. When I left in 2013 or 2012, we'd just gone over half a billion. It was a good run. I don't want to jump around too much, but do you rationalize some of what you did and what happened because of? how much money was raised and the good that that ultimately ended up doing? No, I don't think I rationalized it. I did, as the heat started to intensify, I did think that if it did all melt down, which of course it did, that that would go away. Mm-hmm. Right? I was starting to feel that. I didn't rationalize what I was, I rash, I mean, I, you know, I wanted to win, right? Mm-hmm. And I was racing with a bunch of other guys that wanted to win. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we all, it was kind of gang warfare, but I never thought, well, I'm going to keep doing this because I'm, you know, I'm helping fuel the growth of Livestrong and Livestrong is helping millions of people and saving people's lives. Now, I never went one, two, three like Did that. Did it make you feel, I guess, less bad about it though, right? Because at some point- Yeah, I, think- I mean, I've heard that a lot. I, I, no, no, I, don't, I didn't, because I never, to be honest, and I think most of us that played the game at the time- Never felt bad about it anyways. Yeah. I mean, it was it was the wild, wild west. Yeah. And I wasn't living in their skin, but, you know, you get to know a lot of guys and you certainly get to know them later on in their lives after their careers. Yeah. I mean, it was, dude, it sucked. It was unfortunate. And none of us that played the game like that ever grew up. And I was a 15-year-old kid racing triathlons or going to Moscow as a young bike racer. I never said, man, I cannot wait to fucking go to Europe get all geared up, take a bunch of shit, and try and win. Like, no, no, I never thought that. Yeah. But I did think, I want to be the best. And, you know, it's still baby steps, and you get there, and you're looking around, and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is a different game. And so, and you just what am I going to do? And you it further and further. Well, basically. you just, you, you know, well, once you cross the line, you've kind of crossed the line. Yeah. What is uh, the tour like? Well, it's... The years you're winning, right? How difficult it is? What is the... the... It was, it got more and more sheltered. You know, as the first year we were a small team and I was a first time winner and, you know, you could kind of live amongst the country and the fans and the, what they call the village de part or, but as the years added up, man, it got way more, almost dangerous in a lot of ways. There was a lot of threats. There was a lot of global geopolitical conflict and you had, you know, of course we had, we invaded Iraq in 2004, right at the height of it all. So here you have, you know, George Bush was wildly unpopular in Europe, especially in France. And we're sponsored by the United States Postal Service. I'm an American. I was not popular at all in France. Mm -hmm. At least it didn't seem like. And so then we just, man, we stayed in our bubble. Like we stayed in the bus. We stayed in, we ate in a private room. Like we didn't get out of the bus until right when the race was going to start. And as soon as it was done, right back in the bus. Yeah. We weren't around people. Yeah. For people, <laughs> Which is unfortunate. Yeah, it is. For people that don't cycle or don't understand the gravity of what winning that is like, how do you explain it to people? Like, how do you explain the tour to, to someone who doesn't? The tour is, is a combination of, of a marathon, basically a marathon every day, coupled with NASCAR, because there's a lot of... Yeah, moving around. Moving, moving around and positioning and rubbing, as well as a chess match. Right, so you constantly, as you're trying to, get, there's 200 people in the race, by the way, and the roads are, you know, they could be wide, they can be really narrow, but it doesn't matter. Who gets there first gets there first, mm-hmm. and so you have to be physical, but you also have to 
play your chess game right and correctly and strategically. And then it's also very political. If a team is, in our day, was nine riders, now it's eight riders. But if you're there with nine and there's 200 in total, well, that means just do the math, right? So that means if half of the field wanted to screw you, they're probably going to screw you. So you also had to be very political with the other teams or your director had to be political with the other directors. So that's it. It's a marathon every day meets NASCAR, meets chess, meets politics. That sounds hard. It is hard. Yeah, (laughs) That sounds really hard. And and it's three weeks. Yeah, it's long too. Mentally draining probably also. Yeah, and it's hot. There's crashes. Did you have to learn to work your way around the Peloton of the field, right? Did you early, er, Very early on. I mean, going back to the late 80s, early 90s. But And the other thing too is uh, once you understand how to do that, it's not that hard. But once I had two or three under my belt and our team was so dominant, that everybody just got out of the way. Just got out of the way. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a level of respect, at least there used to be. I, I've heard that sort of the sport has changed a little bit, and it's really every man and every team for himself. If you've won seven tours, <laughs> fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> You're not coming up here. Towards the end, we were allowed to kind of own the front. All right. So you win seven in a row. You retire. You end up coming back for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But eventually everything, as you mentioned, kind of comes crashing down, right? I think 2012, 2013, kind of around that area. Mm-hmm. What happened? Well, I mean, it was a a lot happened. Look, the suspicion was always there. I mean, the suspicion began in 1999 and just grew from there. And then the comeback really allowed the authorities. If I don't come back, all the things that I'm going to tell you that happened, all of those things wouldn't have happened if I didn't come back because the comeback was the bridge to the past. It extended the statute of limitations. It extended the story in the public's eye and in their minds. And so that was the bridge to those days. But the first thing that really happened was there was a, they, and this guy's gone on to, you know, he's sort of famous for getting Marion Jones and getting Roger Clemens and Barry mm-hmm. Bonds, this guy by the name of Jeff Nowitzki, who's now with the UFC. So he focused on cycling. So he started digging in, you know, he did Balco, he did, you know, all the cases. Yep. And a lot of your listeners know these cases. So he starts, as a federal investigator, he starts poking around and starts interviewing some of my competitors, some of my teammates, anybody really. I mean, he loved what he did. I mean, he was, he thought this was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Walking around with a badge and a gun and asking hard questions and making people cry. And yeah. Jeff is not a very stand up guy, as most people know, but whatever. I mean, he had the authority to do it. And that was it. After you had people singing like a bird to a federal agent, it was over. Mm-hmm. And then that led to a criminal investigation, which ultimately, for some reason, was. Well, not really sure why uh, I should back up, but, you know, why there was ever like a criminal investigation in the central district of California about a Texan that raced bikes in Europe. And what was the thought behind that, right? Was it because it's the U.S. team? No, that didn't come till later. We never could figure out what the charge would be or what the crime would be because every, you know. Why California, right? But, you know, why? Well, California, because Novitsky had friendly people in the U.S. attorney's office there that would... They allowed him to impanel. And again, I, listen, this is, I'm just telling you and your listeners how it went down from my perspective. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, look, I'm not a fan of it's Jeff Nowitzki. You know, it is the best. I, I don't ever want to have a beer with that guy. Yeah. But I don't want this to sound like I'm criticizing. He had the power to do it. And he had allies in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles that allowed him to impanel a grand jury. You know, he fed on these things, right? And so he did. Mm-hmm. He went and did those, and then you start pulling people into the grand jury. Then it is really over. Mm-hmm. Criminal case gets dropped, and almost Im- immediately two people jumped in, the DOJ on the civil side, because 
technically or somehow technically Postal Service was a governmental agency. And USADA, which is the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. USADA was 2012? 20, I think it really, yeah. I mean, although they were, Jeff and Travis, who I mean, it was going for years, right? Going for years, and they're very close. They were sharing and comparing notes, which... They're not supposed to do, but that's okay. But USADA, I asked, because when the USADA report came out, that was when sponsors left. That was when everything fell, right? And then when they finally dropped the USADA report, yeah, then everybody, you know, everybody left. And then the civil side intervened. And when USADA drops, sponsors leave. What is the financial impact of that, roughly? It's a big number. Yeah. <laughs> Tens of millions? Oh, no. Potentially more? Hundred? Yeah, no, it's $111 million. Hundred and eleven. Yeah, wow. So all the basically adding up all the sponsorship agreements done, hundred and eleven million. That included and again, I don't some of this stuff, you know, sometimes sounds like I'm trying to gain sympathy. I'm not. I made my bed. That hundred and eleven million dollar bed I was sleeping in, that's my fault, right? Mm-hmm. I mean I'm just telling you asked the question, I gave yeah, you the yeah. answer. That included sponsor dollars and included litigation because the team that I was on was was offsetting a lot of my whether bonuses or salary increases, they were insuring them. Gotcha essentially betting off on these insurance companies that I only knew about one policy. All the others, I had no idea. So the shit hits the fan. Every week I'm getting a letter from some insurance company like, hey, you owe us $15 million. I'm like, who are you? And I'm like, oh, fuck. Yeah. He laid off the whole thing. The guy that owned the team, Tom Weisel. That also includes attorney's fees, which were significant. But it's, look, it is what it is. I've managed to land on my feet. I've got five beautiful, healthy kids. I got the ball back. I'm playing offense, and I wouldn't change a thing. I like that. Uber. Mm. Yeah, that helped. That helped, right? <laughs> that helped. Have you ever publicly said what happened there? Like, I know you invested in uh, Chris yeah. Saka's fund, right? Yep. And I thought I read somewhere that he was going to buy, like, Twitter shares or, like, employee shares. But- yeah, I, I met Saka at a bar in Aspen, actually, where I live now, at the bar upstairs at Monsahisa, to be exact, and... You know, he was, you know, if you've ever met Saka, he's a great guy, but he's very animated. Like, he's huge personality, talks a million miles an hour. I'm like, dude, this guy is lit up. And he said, let's keep in touch. I said, okay. At that day and time, you know, that period of my life, I didn't keep in touch with a lot of people. But something said, like, I'm going to keep in touch with this guy. So we exchanged numbers, and then he went to start his first fund some years after that, lowercase capital. And so I invested in that fund. And, and You're an LP in fund one. I was an LP in, in all of his funds, but especially fund one. Yeah. And so, you know, you know, I knew he was smart and connected and I think was going to be a good investor. I knew that Twitter was part of the equation, but I didn't know that Uber, you know, he had such a huge stake in Uber. Yeah. And You're an LP. He's basically passing along information. Has to become and, and at that point in my life, I had a full-time team on my side that was managing, you know, business manager, an agent, a manager. So any sort of quarterly updates or all this stuff, you know, they were reading through all that. Mm-hmm. I was just out, you know, being me. When did you find out about, like, the, not, the magnitude not, I didn't, of it? I didn't find out about Uber until... Before they went public? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But to, until 2016 or 17. Yeah, that's a nice surprise. Yeah, I was like, wait, what? Look, it's fun to talk about, and it's, you know, we can reminisce about Chris and I meeting and me putting money into his fund. And But the reality is, in light of the conversation we just had, if not for that, I don't know how I would have fed my family. Really? So when you think about it like that, like it's not funny anymore, right? Mm-hmm. It's fucking magic. Mm-hmm. 
And so I don't. I don't know how. The numbers were exaggerated, right, when it first, the news first broke. But And the numbers didn't even replace what I told you what the losses yeah. were. But the numbers were big. Mm. And it was magic. Mm. And I'm thankful that, you know, I stayed for that extra beer and shared my number with Chris Saka. I love that. <laughs> and I had the same story with DocuSign. You know, same. What happened with DocuSign? Same, same, you know, trusting or investing in a fund that was run by somebody that I had known for a long time that I just figured was a smart, connected guy. I thought he'd be a great investor. And that fund was out of Seattle called Ignition. And that one fell, you know, not long after Uber. You know, all of a sudden the email comes in, hey, we've got a distribution. I'm like, wait, what? That's another one. That puts some more meals on the table. Yeah. So, but, you know, picking good fund managers and thank God. What did your business look at the time, right? Are you in like, you obviously sound like you had a team that was helping you out with this kind yeah. of stuff, but are you actively investing or it's just opportunities that come up? Like, how were you thinking about it then versus now? Boy, it's totally different now. Yeah. I mean, I'm way more involved now, although the lowercase story is a little funny because the team didn't really know Chris. Yeah. Um, they did some calls with him. I said, no, we are doing this deal. Yeah. And, you know, people in the room, I don't know, you know, first time fund, you know, what is it? that? Uh, I said, no, 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 just give the guy. I don't even remember what we gave him, but it was enough to be a lot. Yeah. But now it would be a totally different approach. I mean, I think I'm a much, and I'm not trying to toot my own horns because I'll tell you I do most of this myself. I have a, when I, on my personal side, I do it myself. And I have one kid who works with me in Aspen who's awesome. And then I have a team of three others on the fun side that are even way smarter than me, but mm-hmm. I'm just way more engaged, way more involved. And so- Well, you also probably don't have the time back then, right? You're doing a million different things. You're training, you're-, you're uh, Yeah, but you know what? In hindsight, and, and especially sitting in the seat that I sit in now, I, I would have, you know, some of those years were retirement years, so I yeah. had time. Mm-hmm. It would have been a great opportunity to learn. And, you know, obviously I, I did learn some things, but, but I've learned a lot, hell of a lot more the last three or four years doing what I'm doing now. So you do the Oprah interview. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Well, I assume I, I don't know if it was that. I don't know if it was that good. I assume your lawyers probably didn't like that at the time. Is that hated accurate? Yeah. They hated it? Uh, they wouldn't talk to me for a little while. Really? And you just told them we're doing it? Look, lawyers, if a lawyer, and I had great lawyers, mm-hmm. if a lawyer had their way, you wouldn't talk to your mother. You wouldn't talk to your wife. Much less Oprah Winfrey in front of one of the biggest audiences in the world. No, you do not talk. And so I overrode that on their, you know, their decision <laughs> or their, their wish. Why, though? Look, the way I figured is because, again, I was getting these letters every week from these insurance companies, and I knew there would be litigation. And then there were these early days where you're like, okay, the civil side, I mean, I am going to be interviewed by a federal agent or by the DOJ. And there, all bets are off, right? You have to be totally honest. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I'm just imagining in my head, I'm like, I know what's going to happen, right? I'm going to sit there, I'm going to be honest, and they're going to leak the video, and it's going to be some shitty, grainy video where some guy or gal is just completely nuking you in a deposition. And I'm like, fuck. I mean, I'd rather do it this way and just pop the balloon it's like making like a YouTube video today. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like on I mean, your own and, terms and, and they would have. I really, I firmly believe that they would have. So I just said, you know what? Let's just get this out of the way. There was no fixing the situation. It was getting burned to the ground. Did you feel better after that? Uh, not really. In in the sense that, I mean, what do you mean? Uh, that, that I got it off my Personally, chest? Or yeah. That, yeah. I mean, I I was not. I've heard a lot of folks that gave similar interviews that said oh, I walked out of the room and I was the weight of the world was off my. 
I kind of think that's bullshit sometimes, mm -hmm. a lot of times. I knew what was going to happen to me, so I was glad to get it out of the way. I actually thought our conversation went pretty well. She thought it went pretty well, but nobody else thought it went very well. And so somebody once said that, what did they, how did they characterize it? That, oh, they said, for some folks, it wasn't enough. And for other folks, it was way too much. Yeah. Everybody hated it. Yeah. How does that work? Like an interview like that? Do you get questions beforehand? Do you tell her what no, you're willing to say? No, Is it an no. open floor? Open floor. Yeah. And I don't if like you're to gonna do it. You look, have to I, I didn't ask you for what, what you want to talk about. I, at this thing I'm going to go speak at, at 4.30 tonight. The moderator asked me if I want to see the questions. I don't ever want to see the questions. Yeah. Especially at this point in my life where it's 100% real. I don't want to know what you're going to ask me so I can think about it for days in advance and come mm -hmm. up with some canned bullshit answer and fool you and fool your audience. It's like, no, just fire away. Yeah. And, you know. In that case. <laughs> no, yeah. I, honestly, I don't. I, I do a lot of speaking now, and I always open it up to the floor. I say, hey, before anybody starts, there is nothing off limits. Yeah. Like, I just don't care. Yeah. And it's not that I don't care. It's just that it's all out there. I'm just not afraid of talking honestly about the whole story. You mentioned earlier about when federal agents started asking questions, you knew that it was over, right? Mm -hmm. You knew that that was a problem. That happened several years before, right? And you continued at some point to say, hey, this isn't what's happening. I've, you know, beaten test. I haven't done these right. things. Why did you do that if you knew it was over? Well, that wasn't, it's hard to know who they've talked to. Yeah. So we knew they had talked, obviously talked to Landis fairly. You know, a guy like that, you think you can kind of get on credibility. And you would hear rumblings of people that they... But when they talked to George, who was, you know, my longtime teammate mm -hmm. and still a great friend of mine, that's when you never heard me say another thing. Like, when they called George in and we heard... George would not tell me this, but we heard from his lawyer to my lawyer that, hey, man, this guy just... He was honest. Yeah. That's when I said, okay, we're done. So after that, there were no more press releases that talked about you know, past test. And by the way, we did pass all the tests. Yeah. That's not bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> we did. The testing sucked. Yeah. What was wrong with the testing at the time? There's two things, right? The testing in the early days, they didn't have a test. So they were trying to perfect. We're talking about one drug. Mm -hmm. right? We're talking about EPO. Yep. They're trying to perfect a test for this drug. So the test is imperfect. However, the drug is perfect. So you've got a shitty test over here. And a bunch of probably, you know, shitty administrators trying to figure out how to perfect it. Meanwhile, over here, you have a drug that's literally perfect. Mm. It's 10% beneficial. It has a four-hour half-life, which means it just leaves the body very quickly. It is a perfect drug. And I'm not endorsing it or telling anybody to try it. But given it's, what you needed it to do, it was perfect for that situation. You, we tested negative because the tests were negative. Yeah. Which I'm not saying that we didn't do it. I'm just saying we passed the test. The test that they gave us at the time, which, by the way, is still the same test, and the drug is still the same drug, although I think it's used a lot less, it's still there. The half-life is still as short as it is, which means it leaves your body. You'd have to live with somebody and say, let me test you right now, which, of course, you can't do. So it was an intersection of those two. Part of this, right, and again, I know you're not trying to play the sympathy card to some extent, but I'm curious your thoughts because you obviously were in cycling for a long time, dominated the sport, you still covered, you look at it and talk about it a mm -hmm. lot. A lot of people were doing it back then. I don't know the percentage, you probably have a more clear picture mm -hmm. on that. 
But why do you think the reaction was so negative to you specifically? Was it just because you were dominating who you were, well, you were raising money? It, that's an easy one. I mean, it, just for starters, the biggest athlete in the world is always going to fall the hardest. But when that person was so defiant, and when this is the point I was trying to say earlier, this idea of self-inflicted, because it was. If I was just a cyclist who doped and didn't say a word, got in those press conferences and said, oh, I don't know, I don't know, next question, didn't take anybody on, didn't sue anybody, didn't call anybody a name, none of this happens. There are a lot of those guys. Yeah. People don't even know their names. No. Right? The common people. But the guy that's by far the biggest rider in the world, who's incredibly defiant, and then also has the you know the story behind it, you know, it was it was too good a story. I mean, these these look guys like Travis and Novitsky, they have jobs to do, but let's not be mistaken. They loved this. Like this was different. This yeah. wasn't just the doing. Yeah, this wasn't like just doing the job. This was like yes, this is a big game right here. Mm-hmm. Which some would argue is their job, right? To, to yeah. find the biggest yeah. game and, yeah. and try their hardest at that. Yeah. They're, they're not very successful. I mean, I think, look, if, if I do it all day, every day, invest in people and invest in businesses. If you saw the stats on the anti-Dobie movement around the world, you'd run out of this room. Yeah. Well, it's, as in they're not catching enough people, basically. Yeah. Well, you, you look, I mean, I'll just give you the three stats real quickly. Rough, you know, estimates are not even rough, but pretty precise estimates, actually, of the global spend on anti-doping is, is right around 500 million bucks. As they have gone through and done some very, very anonymous studies with athletes, you know, they sort of roughly think that, and these are athletes answering honestly in an anonymous, or answering honestly in an anonymous survey, they roughly figure 25 to 40% of them would dope or do dope. Of all athletes globally, yeah. professional athletes. Yeah. Wow. The catch rate, the positive rate, is less than 1%. Wow. So you spend $500 million, you got upwards of potentially 40% of the people, and you catch less than 1%. Would you invest in that business? No. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But look, it, you can't do without it. And again, I'm not, I'm just giving you the numbers. I'm highlighting the story and the characters, and I'm one of the characters. Well, there's nuance none, to everything. None, right? none of us are sharing Christmas cards. That's no secret. But that's the reality. But the other reality is you have to have it, right? I mean, if my son wanted to ride in the Tour de France and they said, well, you know what? We're not going to have any drug testing. I would say, you're crazy. Like, no, my son's not going then. Mm-hmm. It's just difficult. Two questions off of that. First, if it's 40% globally, right, for all sports, what do you think it is in cycling in the past versus today? It seems like it's gotten cleaned up a bit, right? I, I, I want to agree. I think I agree. I think I agree. Yeah. I'm not, and this isn't a cop-out, but this is my answer, and it's the answer I always give. I have no access to the sport. I cover the sport. I watch yeah. it on TV. I speak to an audience afterwards. I've got no tentacles in the sport. I've got no scoop, no gossip. I have no access. What do you think it was back then, though? Well, it was a lot. I mean, Like 90%? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and keep in mind that for when the EPO era began and, you know, some would argue in the late 80s, early 90s, we didn't have a test until really a decade plus. So I'm still talking about the same drug, right? Yeah. The one that's 10% beneficial, yeah. has a very short half-life. Most would argue has very little side effects. It was like wildfire. I remember pretty clearly some message that you said at some point, I don't know exactly word for word, but at some point when this was all going on, and I've seen it since, you basically said something along the lines of, I had cancer. I'd be an absolute idiot to be doing yeah. this type of stuff. Right. Why would I put more drugs yeah. in my body, all this type of stuff? Right. What are you thinking when you're saying that? You're not thinking. But the most important thing 
for me, just even hearing you say that, because I've seen, you know, and you get shown a lot of these things when you're deposed, right? They make it as hard on you as possible. They show you all these tapes. Yeah. Let's just watch this, yeah. and then we'll have some questions. Not thinking, but either the times that I have been exposed or watched that since then, or even just hearing you say it, it is so, there's only one word. It's embarrassing. And, you know, you'd love to go back and try to say, can I re-say that or can I take that back? But yeah. you can't, man. Everything lives forever now, and that's a fucking disgrace. And there's no way to no way to justify that, and it's totally humiliating. Yeah. How did you explain it to your kids? Were they old enough at the time to understand what was going on? or was they, they? My older kids were old enough to – they lived through it. I mean, when I did Oprah, they were in middle school. So, mm-hmm. you know, we were living in Austin at the time. There was some preliminary work done with the school and all of their teachers and counselors and, and a lot of their friends' parents just to kind of prepare for this, believe it or not. And I don't want to say it was great, but the city of Austin and the schools there handled it amazingly well. Yeah. They're very helpful. As and in then protecting it, them basically from Yeah, in the hallways. Yeah. You yeah. Know. Kids are mean, right? And Kids are mean. Thank God this is before social media. Yeah, TikTok and all this other shit that they're into. But that was outside of the home. Inside the home, I kept a very open channel of communication with the kids. Like, let's talk about this. And if you want to talk about it next week, we'll talk about it next week. If you want to wait a year, yeah. we'll talk about it in a year. And that rule runs true until today. If you got questions, let's talk about it. I think it's become, I know it's become more open and from a discussion point of view over time, mental health, right? Mm-hmm. Did you struggle with that at all through this period? No. I mean, I had outside of just fear for how I was going to care for my family. No, I didn't. I never struggled. I always wanted to get up and train hard and race hard and go kick ass. Like it never, I never ever thought anything other than that. And this was another type of war, but I... <laughs> The only thing I, like I said, I was just, I was really fearful that I wouldn't be able to provide for my family. Yeah. Were they nervous too at some point? You'd have to ask them. I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> I've never asked them that question. Yeah. I should ask them that question. I'm sure if you were I, scared, I should ask right? Anna. Like... I mean, I've never even asked my wife that question, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I'll, I'll report back. What's life like today? You're obviously, so for people that don't know you, you have a venture fund, Next yep. Ventures. You guys have raised some money. You've invested in some great companies. Yep. Yep. What are you doing day to day? What's life like? So, and I really do. This is a better conversation, more fun. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> look, I, I actually don't mind talking about all the things we just talked about is always a good, this is why I like telling people when I'm giving a speech to a YPO chapter or a big room, say, listen, fire away. Yeah. Let's fucking go. Because yeah. it's just a reminder to me. I mean, it's in a way, it's cathartic and healthy. And it's just a reminder of what a fucking fool I was. And I like being reminded of that because I will have success again in my life, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's only one person who can fuck it up. Mm-hmm. And it's me. Just like I fucked up chapter one, I can also fuck up chapter two. So it's nice to, I mean, <laughs> nice might not be the word, but it's, I think it's healthy to relive a lot of that stuff. So so what am I doing now? So I do really two main things. Primarily, we have an early stage venture fund called Next Ventures. We invest across the spectrum of health and wellness and healthcare. I have two great partners, Julian Ice and Mel Strong, and then a great kid on the team, the one who's a big fan of yours. <laughs> when I told him I was doing the podcast, he was like, oh, dude, that's cool. I like him already. Yeah, Jordan, Jordan. And he's they're all a hell of a lot smarter than me. You know, we have made 18 investments thus far. We've got some great companies in there of the likes of Aura Ring and Outside and SteadyMD. And we know the space. 
And we think this space is here to stay, right? No matter what's going on. I mean, God, there's so much shit going on in the world with interest rates and recession and now crypto and health and wellness is not... It's ever, not going anywhere. It's never yeah. going away. And so we're long the space. We know the space. Well, and and from a technology standpoint, it's only... That's accelerating more right. than anything, right? Yeah. And we're getting good results. And so, you know, we'll keep doing that. So that's one thing. I spent about 90% of my time on that. And then I have, which is what I alluded to earlier when I was talking about technology. So a few years ago, I started a very similar show to this called The Forward. And COVID sort of killed it for a while. I'm with you. I, I hate doing these on Zoom. That's better in person. Way better. And then on the heels of that, I started a cycling show, which I was really reluctant to do. But eventually we did it. And that show blew up. And that's kind of been... And you the, review, you recap... I'm trying to think what you would compare it to. It's like any post-game or post-race analysis show, typically 30 to 40 minutes. So in the summer, during the tour, we are all in one place. We build a studio. It's a very, you know, it's a fairly big production. Otherwise, we do the spring races and the other races on Zoom. But that's been a big hit. And so those are the two things I do. And then I... You like the media stuff? Well, what I was this is what I was alluding to earlier, right? So when we were talking about technology and as part of my cancer journey, not having technology there to help me along the way. Yeah, I love it. And what I love about it is that if, because I started the first show, I don't know, five or six years ago, if my story would have happened 10 or 20 years prior, I'm toast. Yeah. Right. You're just sitting around. You're like, man, is ESPN ever going to call one day and want me to talk about the tour? Is CNN going to, you know, I don't know who's going to call, right? But you are waiting on a call. We live in a day and age, just like we're doing right now. You buy these mics, the light, the camera, anybody can create content. Yep. It is an amazing time. Without, without the fact of that, I would have been completely fucked. And I wasn't. I was able to go out and say, all right, let's start doing a podcast. Bought the mics, uploaded to all the platforms. People started getting into it. And then it grew and it grew and it grew. And then we added the second show. And then we now got like 10 other titles under that, that umbrella brand. So... Yeah, man. It's good to be alive today. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Question on the fund. This is an interesting one, I think, is like, you're obviously raising money from LPs, right, to invest this money. Yep. Was it difficult to get them to give you money of because of everything that happened? Yeah. Yeah. How'd you yeah. overcome that? Um, like, do they just not trust you initially no, and yeah, you have to earn I, that? Well, the ones who are LPs, yeah. I would not say that they don't trust me. There must be some level of trust. I'm sure there were people along the way that just said, and I really didn't hear a lot of this. Maybe some of my partners protected me from that, but you have to imagine that there were people who's like, hell no, I'm not, I won't even take the meeting. Yeah. So much less give the kid or the team money. I don't even want the meeting. I'm sure that happened. And not um, even necessarily because of investing skills. They just don't want to be associated. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Which, listen, man, I am a, perhaps one of the most polarizing figures in America mm -hmm. or in the world. And so you, you have two choices when you know that you're that guy, right? You either live with it or you don't, right? I've chosen to live with it. So I don't know what the split is. Let's just say it's 50-50. I actually don't think it is, but let's call it that. You know, if somebody comes up to me on the street and says, just like they did the other day, I was an awesome lady, ran out of a restaurant, said, I love you, Lance. And I was like, fuck, that's awesome. Yeah. If I keep walking down the block and some guy walks out and says, hey, fuck you, Lance, I go, all right, 
That's cool that's, too. That's cool. I get it. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I right? imagine that probably really doesn't happen all that often. That, though, right? It's only happened once. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. People are, are much less likely to do that in person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, when the time it happened, it really happened. But <laughs> is there a story there? That seems like you got to uh, watch the thirty for thirty. It, it, oh yeah, it, it yeah. Kicks off, it yeah. kicks off yeah. the thirty for thirty. Yeah. Did you like the thirty for thirty? Maybe like's not the right word. But. Yeah, it's hard to watch a you know a three hour thing about your life and yeah. be the subject of it. You can't. You could be the Pope. They'd make a documentary, and you wouldn't like it. You just you're gonna find something in there that you don't like. Yeah, but in the end, it, it was good for me, and I'm glad that I did it. I'm thankful that ESPN and Marina and Jim Pitaro and everybody. I'm glad they did it. So, what was that like? They came to you, or you? Oh, it took years. We yeah. did it over years. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. it's a process, right? Yeah, yeah, it took a long time. A long time. Yeah, but Marina was great. That's who I spent most of the time with. She was the director, and I enjoyed. I don't like sitting down for interviews a lot, as you know, because we've been trying to do this for a long time. But I liked her. Yeah. I liked being around her. So even if we weren't doing an interview and we we're just grabbing dinner or just shooting the shit, like, I liked her. Yeah. You know, Makes it, it easier. It would have been different if we were like, oh, my God, this lady's so annoying. She was cool. I enjoyed time with her. What do you think your place in cycling is today? Like, what is your relationship with cycling, we'll call it? Well, it's a good question. I don't... I assume you don't think I about think, it much, I, right? I don't think about it very much. I know... And this isn't a popular answer, but I know who won the races. Yeah. And more importantly than that, the people that I raced against know who won the races. Mm -hmm. So let's establish that as a baseline. It would be totally different, and it does get a little under my skin that I think an event as great as the Tour de France. Think about all – you cover all of this stuff, right? You, mm -hmm. I read your shit every day. I listen to your shows. The Tour is a very special event. It's been around more than 100 years. It's you know arguably one of the biggest annual sporting events in the world. It is magnificent. It is beautiful. It is historical. You cannot have a seven-year span without a winner. Yeah. There has to be a winner. There has to be. I mean, Not according to Wikipedia. Well, <laughs> I it, went on there before this to see if, yeah. they, if they actually, if it's off and it's, I know, it's but, off. But it here's the not. thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. And I firmly believe this. And I talk about this sometimes. History edited my story. Yeah. History's not done. This thing will continue to be edited. So you asked me where my place is in sort of cycling right now. It is where it is, and history will continue to edit this story. Wikipedia, it will not be like that forever. I promise you. You cannot have an event that great yeah. with no winner. Or then promote somebody else. Or do something. I mean, you just cannot have it that way. It makes yeah. no sense. Yeah. Or you have some other concerted and well thought out and smart effort, almost like a, a truth and reconciliation. We're just like, all right, we all admit this is a really fucked up time. We mm -hmm. ain't doing it again. Mm -hmm. I mean, if countries like Rwanda can come together and have truth and reconciliation and two just tribes that you can't possibly imagine hate each other more and just done unbelievable things to each other, if they can come together and agree to, to move on, then, you know, that's a little extreme of an example, but that would have been a better way to acknowledge the past, acknowledge that everybody fucked up, and move forward and put the thing in a box and send it on its way. Meanwhile, that didn't happen. Did you ever receive or have you talked to sponsors or old sponsors? And I don't want to say like patched up, but like have they thanked you for some of the stuff that you did for them, or is it just all anger still? Or No, I don't think so. I mean, there were... No. 
I mean, well, I shouldn't say that. Like, you know, let's take there, there were a few really big ones, right? You had the Postal Service. There, there's not been any uh, no conversation, no there. cups of tea there. Yep. Trek bikes, no cups of tea. Oddly enough, I mean, in the story of Trek, I don't hear from Trek, but I hear from all their competitors because during that era, as you know, Trek went from 100 million in sales to a billion. Everybody else, Specialized did the same, Giant mm-hmm. did the same. All ships rose with that tide. Mm-hmm. So I hear, oddly enough, hear from their competitors. Not not much contact at Nike, although Phil Knight has been a really, really good friend to me through all this. And then some of the other ones, you know. But that's, look, I certainly, I'm not a sponsorable athlete, if that's even a word, right? I'm 51 years old. I don't compete at the highest level. I'm not on TV. I'm not, I'm just a recreational athlete. Do you still ride a bunch today? I ride as much as I can. You know, we live in Aspen and it's, Mountain bikes, I guess. Mountain bike in the summer, but now it's yeah. full on snow, wintertime. So, but no, but I, I finally this morning I woke up and found a pool nearby. So, took an Uber over there, swam 3,000 and Ubered back. Oh, you still swim? You like swimming yeah, the best? Swimming, swimming's my, if the world said you got to pick one sport the rest of your life, it'd be close between swimming and golf. But yeah, love to swim. I mean, I wouldn't go find some random pool in Miami Beach yeah. and swim for an hour if I didn't love it. Yeah. Last question. Why did you come back? I was just thinking about this. From in in yeah. 09, right? Because you yeah. mentioned, right? And yeah. I'm thinking about it because you said that if you didn't come back, a lot of this probably doesn't happen. Maybe no, none it, of it. it. It doesn't happen. And I've sort of changed this answer over the years because I would often say, oh, the biggest mistake of my life and what the fuck? Why did I do that? And I wish, wish I wouldn't have done it. I mean, you asked me why did I come back. It was part boredom. It was part... Live Strong was slipping just because you naturally would slip if you don't have you that done. stage anymore. So I thought, like, ah, let's give it a little more gas. This guy won the Tour de France in 2008, this kid from Spain that was, I thought he was just like a complete bus boy. I'm like, I could be this guy in my sleep, which are all, none of these are really great reasons. Yeah. To come but back combined to, together, you're still competitive. Yeah, but you're still coming back to one of the hardest what, sports in the world. You're nearly 40 at this point? No, no, I was, when did I come back? I was like their mid-30s. Mid-30s, yeah. Which is too old. Yeah. But I did. Like, we can all sit here and and talk about whatever. But I did. I did come back. And that was the bridge to the past. And that did lead to a really hard decade in my life. That's okay, Joe. I'm sitting here right now. I'm going to leave right here. I'm going to walk out. I'm going to go do this thing. I'm going to fly to New York, do another thing tomorrow. And I'm going to be me the whole time. Mm -hmm. It's a fucking good gig. Yeah. I don't want to change a thing. You know, people ask a lot, you know, would you do it again? All of these, these are all strokes on the canvas, man. And and I love my life. And I'm super thankful. Back to your question earlier about raising money. I'm super thankful that people trusted me to invest their money. And, you know, I'm going to live with it and roll with it and be happy. Yeah. The the one thing we didn't really talk about, which I was curious about too, was the foundation, right? So you obviously left the foundation. I don't know what that split was necessarily Mm -hmm. like, but one how difficult was that? And then two, very difficult. What is the relationship not only to the foundation today, if any, but, non-existent? But I'm giving you short answers on. But cancer-wise, yeah. are you involved in anything in and around cancer research, donations, all that um, kind of stuff? No, not on the nonprofit side. Look, the extent of my cancer work now is through my iPhone. Right, I get message from somebody either through socials or through a friend, or it doesn't matter. I just grab my phone. Yeah, bang out a 20-second video. Hey, man. Hey, Joe. Heard about your recent diagnosis, man. You're so loved. We're all thinking about you, pulling for you. Let me know if I can help. Yeah, so, so strong. Yeah, yeah. That's it. And then I hit send, and I'm out. And they love it. They keep it forever, and yeah. that's cool. 
we did actually invest in a company at Next Ventures called Trial Library, which is a clinical trials play with helping people, helping the underserved community with access to clinical trials, which are just so wildly important. So some involvement there, but none with, you know, the American Cancer Society or Livestrong. And, and look, what was the split like with, with not the foundation? Good. Not it good. It was terrible. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, and the it, board it, basically it, said we can't be associated with right. this? You gotta, you're gone and we're changing the name. Because before that, it was called the Lance Armstrong Foundation. So then it officially changed to Livestrong. Yep. No, it was heartbreaking. Did you even know that could happen at the time? Yeah, I mean, dude, there was a lot going on. Yeah, at the time. Yeah. I, was trying, I, was I just trying. mean from like a like a structure yeah. standpoint, right? I think yeah. when most people put together a foundation or a business, even yeah. they don't even understand. I, I was, I, I actually said, okay, well, whatever. But I knew, I also knew that it was a bad idea. Yeah. That was a bad idea. I should back up. I thought it was a bad idea because I thought a couple of things. One, you cannot separate the two, and I think they would agree with that now, right? Mm-hmm. If your color is yellow and your fight is cancer, and your name is Livestrong. You almost have to change everything. You have to go purple, fight yeah. Parkinson's, and call it something else. Yeah. Because if you're walking down the streets of Paris, Texas, or Paris, France, and you say Livestrong, give me a name. Yeah. They give you the name. So it's there forever. And, you know, look, I'll give you an example. So our summer show is massive, the tour show. It does millions and millions of downloads in just three weeks. The tour started this year just a few weeks after this unimaginable tragedy in Uvalde, we had a group come to us and said, look, we want to give a bike to every kid in every elementary school in Uvalde, but it's going to be 800 bikes and we're going to need, you know, I think it was, they needed $160,000. And I said, don't worry, my audience will help. Mm-hmm. We did it in like seven days. So you can imagine if and it's almost... If you were still connected to yeah, the condition. Yeah, but it's, I think the damage is done. And, and well, I imagine at some point they, no uh, they couldn't see the other side, right? They only saw the valley in between that you went through for years, I imagined, where I would argue you're probably on the other side of that now, yeah. right? Where you're, you're yeah, doing I a agree. bunch of different things mm-hmm. and, and the image has changed to some degree. But at first, initially, it's, it's probably pretty difficult. What did you say to them when they called you? Well, I didn't... I didn't uh, no, no good words? <laughs> nothing good. <laughs> I think it was on an email. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm not very proud of that either. But it was heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. But there's no winners there, Joe. And I don't like stories where there's no winners. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys, uh, if I remember correctly, too, you weren't even, you weren't necessarily funding cancer research, right? You were funding. Yeah, all, of, all about awareness. And listen, we were raising a lot of money. But yeah. if you're raising $50 million a year, that sounds like a lot of money. But in the world of fighting cancer, I mean, you literally have to spend billions of dollars. Yeah. So we were- Even uh, more, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, it, and you could make the argument that we should be spending 50 times more. Yeah. But we were highly effective on the educational side, the awareness side, the advocacy side. I mean, we, we got a billion-dollar bond initiative passed in the state of Texas. We did. Livestrong did. That cost us about half a million bucks to get passed, right? So the way I looked at that, we spent half a million. We got a billion. Like, and it's still there. Good trade. It's a great trade. So- yeah. But no, and we got a lot of criticism. Oh, these fucking people, they say they're, you know, funding cancer research. We never said that. Yeah. Well, if a, would, a journalist would write that or somebody would say that. We never said that. Our, the website was very clear. And, well, I would actually make the argument that what you guys were doing was better, right? Because of how much yeah. resources are already being put already behind Already being there. put there, yeah. And $50 million a right, year, right. to be honest, it's not really going to make a dent. It's not in, gonna, and, and you're going to have a very hard time finding the right place to deploy that kind of money. Yeah. The giving it away is, is yeah. another difficult problem. What was the origin story of the Livestrong band? How'd that come about? 
I thought the last question was like three questions. Yeah, we're going to keep going. <laughs> no, this is the last one. Livestrong Band. The Livestrong Band. Because those things were everywhere. They were, Nike made them for basketball players, and I think they were called ballers. Yep. And I don't know, maybe different colors. And somebody, a lot of people take credit for it, but which means you can never figure out who, actually whose idea it was. Yeah. But somebody in that room said, why don't we take a baller, make it yellow. We'll make six million of them in honor of him trying to win his six tour. We'll sell them for a dollar. And if we sell them all, we'll raise $6 million. So they brought me this idea. And I said, that is the dumbest fucking idea ever. But I had to wear it. Right. And we all had to wear it and the team wore it and other riders in the tour wore it. And then not long after that, they had the Olympic games in, in Greece. A lot of that, you know, all sports wore it. I mean, we went through 5 million like that and then 10 and 20 and, you know, obviously now well north of 80 million. So it wasn't such a bad idea. I didn't, I thought it was, you know, I didn't know what I thought. I didn't think it was a great idea. I don't want to age you, but I was wearing those things in middle school. <laughs> well, uh, no, it was a good time. Yeah, it was, it was uh, a good time. It was, and it spun off every different color, every different cause. Every, yeah. I mean, we raised eighty some million dollars, but imagine if you—that might even be a billion dollar number yeah. that was raised for some charity. Whether it's doesn't matter what it was. Yeah, because people took it doesn't them matter what. Yeah, things. they used all the colors and and everybody had them. So good. Thank you so much idea. for doing yeah. this. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. Uh, you couldn't have been nicer with your time, so thank you so much. Yeah, I don't even know how long we went. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. You the man. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.